0: Well, welcome, guys, to Undressing Finance. I'm your host, Lindsay Rosenthal, and today I'm with the incredible Helen Child, founder Open Banking Excellence, and Sam Cn, CEO at MoneyHub, to the podcast. I'm excited to have you guys both here, trailblazing and open banking, and usually, sometimes on the other side, interviewing people in the industry, which is really exciting. Uh, kind of funny last night, so. I was trying to describe to my, my roommates like kind of what open banking is. And I'm pretty sure most of like, my uh, listeners are, are, are knows what open banking is. But just to touch up on it real quick, it's just, you know, what banks allow secure third parties access to financial information, which allows consumers experiences such as easier access to loans, better tools to manage, or manage your personal finances and things like that. And it's funny because I've had a lot of conversations lately with people in my house about different finance things going on because we're all about to graduate pretty soon. So we're talking about credit cards later. Lately, and everything like that, and so when they asked what open thinking was, they really had no clue. And I talked to them a little bit about like the Mint mobile app. They for sure knew what that was. Mint being able to aggregate all your personal information together to be able to kind of budget better, better, and save better, and be able to spend more, more smart in the long run. Um, but it's really interesting. Is that in general, I really feel like my my generation has become quite accustomed to this. Better, superior financial experience of being able to just kind of connect everything together and be able to do everything all all at once. Uh, But it's not like in the past where you had to just go to the bank, you had your you and all these banks and kind of be able to go from there. And I think this has really been pushed a lot by COVID and just by this use to be able to connect everything together. Um, no one really wants to be, have to like connect their demo to their bank account and wait a couple of days for those little tiny deposits to come in. They rather just connect their bank, use Plaid, and kind of go from there. And so, kind of on that note, I would love to kind of have you guys introduce yourselves and kind of talk about a little bit what you do in the open banking realm of the world. So, Helen, do you want to go first?
1: Lizzie, thank you. I have to say, um, you're right. It is it is unusual for me to be interviewed as opposed to doing. <laughs> Thing on the other side of the mic, as, as, as Sam said, uh before we, we came on air. But um, you absolutely nailed it on your on your summary of what open banking is, so hats off to you because the key word there is secure. So it's when uh we as consumers um give our consent to for a third-party processor such as Money Hub, which is the company that Sam runs, to, to look at our debt data. We are giving our cons. Uh, secure consent for a, a third party processor to look at our data for a specific purpose. So you're absolutely right. And uh, Sam will uh, talk to you more about that later but it actually came around um, it's been here for four years now so yes it has accelerated through COVID but it all came around uh, through a CMA um, order uh, that's a competition and uh, markets authority that uh, legislated that some of the big banks in the UK had to uh, open up the market. So Open Banking is actually a working project title. It should have been called something else, but this is the the title we have now. So Open Banking is about opening up the market to stimulate innovation and create more competition in the market, which is exactly what Sam's company Money Hub does. Sam?
2: Yeah, so we were were, uh, always wanting people to be able to have better clarity over their money so um, it's it's fundamental i think because what you would said uh, when you opened up lindsay about the expectation now is it's a it's effortless and it's it's always on and it's there but the but the downside of that is that if you can't see it easily and get insight effortlessly then actually it's also equally to have no control over it because it's kind of out of sight out of mind you know it's touch and go it's this it's that and to, to the point where I even thought about the fact that when employers pay people, you no longer ever see what they really pay you because who logs on to those payroll systems where you've got to go and see your pay skip? I mean, no one ever does that. What do you do? You look at what's gone into your bank account. And that's what you think you're getting paid, which by the way is not what you're getting paid, because you're getting paid a hell of a lot more than that. But that's how we're all seeing our money now is literally the net pay, that's it. And then on top of that, you know, unless you can really, you know, control it and know what to do next with your money you know we haven't got hope have we yeah so money that yeah. is all about helping actual businesses do that better with their customers because I think there's a massive hole and obviously the open banking order if you like has has kind of opened up the market but I think it's much bigger than that I think it's about open finance and open data and i kind of call it don't i i mean helen's me heard me say this before but i think open banking is one dimensional and open mm-hmm. finance is two-dimensional and open data is three-dimensional mm-hmm. so i think that's we have that full cool picture when we can bring all of our data together yeah I And mean, then a few it's people what... also said to me why would, why would i give anyone consent to look at my banking data and um and i say to people well you know, at the moment, you don't realize how much you're giving to all sorts of companies without realizing it. And I said, so the first step is about the clarity, isn't it? You know, I mean, if you think about Google Maps, I mean, you know, all the phones that, you know, monitoring that what we're doing. And wasn't it someone told me the other day that I think my Samsung phone knows about all of my, what is it, um, you know, habits about when I go to the toilet. And I mean, they, they know better than me. You know, yeah. When I do all Yeah, yeah.
0: Which I think is funny that you say, like, why would I want to share my data? And I feel like being a part of this, like, younger generation, really growing up, it's almost the opposite. It's almost like we're not focusing, focusing as much on the secure part of sharing our data. I think we're more willing just to share it because we really, really, are seeking out that easy experience, the quicker experience, the faster. I feel like, on the other hand, it's really important that we focus on making sure that who we're sharing it is is important. When, whereas it maybe in the past it was more like I don't want to share my data because it's, it could be really dangerous because financial data is really obviously super important so it's super interesting on that on that side of things but
1: it, it is um, Lindsay it's, 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 we've democratized data and it, the, the important word there it is secure and that the the key word is with consent so you've, you've nailed it again.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Before we dive into things, I would love to kind of hear both of your guys' thoughts on why did you dive into a career in open banking about four years ago or around that time um, versus staying kind of on your own path, your own trajectory?
1: Sam, I would love to hear your story, actually. Go for it.
2: So so mine's a little bit unique uh in that we I was uh, Mon- so Money Hub was created by our CTO, Dave Tong, in 2013 because he got so frustrated having to fill out loads of rubbish forms that he thought, well, this is crazy. You know, if I could share my banking data, you know, with these forms, it would all be filled out for me. And being a being a true tech, you know, they want efficiency, they don't like any waste, and they like to be able leverage, don't they? So um so he actually um was the first person to create Money Hub 1. He coded it, you know, up and then won Finnovate Europe in 2014 with Money Hub 1, as we call it. And then Momentum bought it outright. And then it was had a lot of money spent on it to become an enterprise-grade platform, which Dave oversaw. And I joined, I joined Momentum to help them commercialise it in around 2016. And then they ran into some trouble in South Africa. They're a big South Africa insurance company whereby they had to get rid of everything non-core. It was due to politics political environment, the economy at that t- time, so they um, so said to them, and I, I didn't know what non-core meant, everything non-core off the books, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, that means money hub's going in the bin. I'm like, no way. And I thought, no, you can't put money hub in the bin. Open banking's coming. Dave set it all up so that actually then we're going to have these secure, tokenized way of bringing in the data. I thought, oh, no, that's crazy. So I said to them, I said, well, if you're going to put it in the bin, I'll buy it. <laughs> So so you, you talk about, you know, how did you get into it? It's like, well, honestly, a bit random, right? It's a bit like, because I felt so strongly about the product. I mean, so strongly about how the fit for what was coming. It was so right. And I don't, you, you're probably too young to remember 2004 in the egg card, but here in the UK, you could actually aggregate your your egg card in 2004 through screen scraping and I was I I was like you now saying about that I loved it I had everything in my egg card all all, all aggregated and, and then egg card fell over and went to Prudential or something and disappeared it's like oh and then I thought oh my god this is this is egg card but even better you know like this is another so and I thought over my dead body is this going in the bin so um so that so i i I literally i feel at that point jumped off a cliff with no parachute and hope to god there was something quite you know good to land on at the bottom
0: wow talk about a gamble but that's amazing i love how you were so passionate about this new emerging industry and you're like i'm gonna go for it and i think it's really paid off as as well too so what about you helen i'm really
2: those opportunities don't always come along right and i i don't look back you know, I don't look. I don't regret thing but like you said, it certainly was. I did have my braid pants on that day.
1: <laughs> well, I, uh, I uh, getting into open banking um, is, is like Sam. It wasn't a, a deliberate career move, if you want to call it a career, really. Um, um, I my payments is in my DNA. Payments is in my background, so I've been in payments for about ooh, probably more decades than I have to care to. Um, to admit to um i years ago uh founded a card issuing bank a prepaid card issuer and we were the first uh, e-money license issuer to get uh, a scheme license from both mastercard and visa and when we had our e-money license we were number five and google was number six so we were very very pioneering so I like to be at that, at that pointy end of the conversation. I, I, I truly do. I, I love to build. I always say that maybe I didn't have enough Lego as a child. I think there's something absolutely fascinating about getting a team of people together and getting the best out of that talent and moving it forward. I, I find that that's the biggest, biggest thrill is working with a team and and how I got into. Um, um, OBE and, and, and launching OBE it was purely by default. I had finished a big global project, and I got invited to help a friend out. Um, uh, one of those evening dues, networking dues where they serve warm wine and lots of sort of things on sticks. That was your. That was the problem. With all the wine. I mean, that's <laughs> what happened. All the wine's <laughs> <Beyond
0: Yeah>. open <laughs> banking.
1: <laughs> and, and it was. It was actually. And I'll give them a name tag, It was actually sponsored by FinTech Scotland. And the one wine was the one that served by guys in Kills. And there was 38 pioneers, of which Sam was one, well, Sam was in the room. 38 pioneers. And uh, a guy called James, a friend of mine, said, Oh, come on, H, help me rift. Whatever rifting is, I am still doing today. It takes up most of my waking hours. I thoroughly enjoy it. And we have built a global community out of it. And, and what I heard that evening was it was, it was way back it sort of took me back to when i built that card issuer it was that pioneering uh exciting you know hairs on the back of your your net get stand up something's happening here and we're all on a journey i'm not absolutely sure where it's going to go but the the energy and and the intelligence to be fair in that room was phenomenal and because i've got a mic in my hand everybody said let's do this again i can only say one thing i can't. i've got to go yeah Yeah, we can do this again. Of course we will. The next day, I rang a very good friend of mine who happens to be an MD of a consultancy with a very trendy office. So she had the obligatory uh, table tennis tables and beanbags. And um, I I invited everybody. I said, and um, she threw in, I think, uh, a bit of cash for some some hospitality. And I invited the FCA because they were doing a um, a shout out, a call out for financial inclusion. So right from the get-go, I wanted to do something that was values-driven, that had had real purpose. I got the, the biggest shoe invest there, and I thought that was it. I get everybody together, more wine, more food, a great conversation. It's just like having a, you know, a, a dinner party at home. Okay. You get the right people around the table and something amazing will happen. Well, everybody wanted to meet again. And I thought, ah, maybe, maybe we can do this. And by then, MasterCard had actually said, and they have been with us from the get-go. And um, without MasterCard, we wouldn't be here today. Their support has been incredible. Um, they've taken a very, very sophisticated view. Um, they don't want to domineer the conversation. In fact, they rarely speak. Um, and we have complete editorial rights. So we are an independent arbitrator. And from there, we, we launched, okay? Um, and we, we then went to Yapali, um, was our next home. We outgrew Yapoli. And we then went to Equinix in Devonshire Square. That was really trendy. They had lovely offices. And we had our trademark pizzas and my, me with my green juice so everybody knew who I was. No wine then <laughs> I have to say. Uh, I was, I was in <clears> of. <throat> and then we we went into lockdown. And we crashed into lockdown, didn't we, in the UK? Absolutely crashed. And we go out on the third Thursday every month. So I had no option but to go online. And we were one of the first. It was no strategic planning. It was out of, like... We've got to do something. It's like, whoa, it's online there. Here we go. And uh, we grew. We grew exponentially. And uh, we grew from those 38 fintechs, of which Sam was one of them, to now a global community of nearly 20,000 fintechs, banks, regulators, policymakers, service providers around the world, still with that energy, still with that pioneering spirit, that still want to make amazing stuff happen. And because I was in payments, I sort of got where the journey was going. And that's like Sam, this is not a deliberate sort of career move, um, but it is probably one of the best and most exciting journeys I've been on. Amazing.
0: Amazing. Well, there's a reason why I have like queen of open banking in my show notes. That is absolutely incredible. (laughs) And I love the way that you bring people together in industry and really pioneer whatever's going on. really quite incredible. I'd love to jump into now kind of one of the main topics of today is consumer duty, which is a pressing topic right now that just got proposed by FCA in UK at the end of July about two weeks ago. Um, Sam, I would love to have you drop it off with kind of what what is consumer duty and what does it mean to you when it regards to a horse? <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, consumer duty is is genuinely uh, what it says on the tin. So, you know, it's a duty to us as people, right? Uh, but I think what's, what's quite revolutionary about it from my perspective is that uh, the FCA has, I guess, uh, taken treating the customer fairly to another level. So it said, okay, look, you know, the industry is treating customers fairly, we get that but uh, we want to take the responsibility for looking after the customer in terms of the regulated product world to another level and so what they've done is they've obviously looked at how to do that and come up with the idea and followed through in terms of any regulated product provider and it doesn't matter what you sell so that could be a mortgage or it could be a life policy it could be car insurance it could be a bank account savings i mean it doesn't matter if you're a regulated product provider and you provide something to a business or a consumer and you have, you know, obviously more than one product because most companies do, you have this onus now to the to, to make sure that the product that you've sold the customer is not only fit for purpose on day one, but that it is fit for purpose for the entire life of the product. And that is a massive shift for our industry. And the reason I'm so excited about it is because I am such an advocate of financial services shifting to a more customer-focused or customer-centric proposition. I'm a really big believer that if you just focus on the customer and what their needs are, that you will still be able to make money selling your products and services to that customer, but you'll end up with a more engaged, happy customer because you'll have sold them products and services at the time when they need them, not when they don't need them, and also that they can afford them and it's right for them. And so that's why I've been a bit – this now is actually almost forcing their hand to say, actually, selling someone a product is the beginning. You know, if, if that's what you're doing, if that's what's in your DNA to kind of what I call flogging product, well, fine, but now you have to make sure that that product you sold to that customer you know for 30 years if the mortgage with you with you for 30 years if the life insurance policy is 30 years and it's actually it's not time box so if for example you sell them at today and a week later you've got a, a better product that's more appropriate for that person then guess what you need to let them know and the the onus is on you as the product provider to let the customer know so finally the customer you know is actually getting what i call serviced i mean you sell the product and then you get serviced as a customer while you are you know which which is so unique and I just think it it ties in with why I feel so strongly about you know it being customer-centric because my view is that the way financial services takes products to market it's very difficult for us as consumers to really know whether that is the right product for us. I I know I've said to um, Helen before I think you know, if you'd said to me, I need to take a car apart and put it back together in order to get my driving licence, you know, I'd be on the bus. Because it's not, it's not that I couldn't do that, right? I'm sure if you, you know, if I put my mind to it and, you know, had a spare year or so to, you know, take the car apart and put it back together, I'm sure I could actually do it. But I don't want to do it. I have no interest in taking a car's engine apart and putting it back together. But, you know, every mechanic out there is going to be driving the car, aren't they? Because they love that. And that's how I feel it is for financial services. Anyone who loves, you know, the technicalities of money, they thrive on what we do and they're brilliant. They know exactly what they're doing. But the rest of the world out there, which is, what, 95%, they're not interested in how money works. It's an enabler. It just lets you live your life. So this 95% of the customer base is not living their life in the way that they should because, you know, they, they can't possibly know what they don't know. So what I'm really pleased about is the regulators put that onus back on the actual product provider to say you are responsible for making sure it is right for the customer, it's right every day for the customer, and that you don't have something else that isn't better or fit for purpose that you can help them with.
0: Mhm. That's why I think it's so unique about the financial service industry is that the the consumer is really usually at a disadvantage. They don't usually know what's going on. It's not like a lot of different if you go to the grocery store, you see an apple, you know what that is. But with the financial service industry, you really do have a hard time reading the fine print, especially if you don't have a degree in finance or 20 years in the industry. And so I think it's a super super important act. Um, Helen, I would love to hear your thoughts and then eventually I'd love to move into thoughts on this is really trailblazing for financial industries in, in general. And I feel like the UK is really leading this, this 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 movement. And I think it'd be interesting to hear your guys' thoughts on how this kind of could affect the rest of the world with, you know, open banking and even financial services and making sure that the consumer is really at the forefront of this of the products.
1: Well, all credit to Sam. If anybody wants to learn more about consumer duty, there are two amazing pieces of content. Um that it would be remiss of me if I didn't give them a plug. One is a fantastic piece of content that everybody is talking about, and it is shot uh with Sam and her mum, I believe, at her stables. And some I can't remember the name of your horse. Your horse Ludico. My yeah. lovely horse, Ludico. Ludico, Sam <laughs> Ludico, okay. It is a fabulous clip. It is it is really easy to understand. And what Sam has really done is that she's made it accessible. She's actually made a piece of quite dry uh, regulation that everybody has to comply with, you know, and what does that mean in our sector? If people don't comply with it, there will be fines. Okay. So the banks can make, you know, they have to option A, make provision on your balance sheet for fines, or two, you know, get on the journey and, and comply. So what Sam has done is she's made it accessible. She's made it um, you know, very relevant to, to everybody. So one is the, the clip with Sam and Ludo. Um I don't think I pronounced his name right, but uh, and the I'll, I'll, I'll link the clip be too because right it's pretty be special. He won't be bothered. <laughs> and the other one <laughs> for, for a really keen horse, girl, that's not good. Uh, for the other one is is that Sam was on a, a um a money hub campfire with uh Sam's director of a business development, Vaughan, who is probably one of the uh most um uh, authentic people and knowledgeable people in the industry. He really has a depth of expertise on this. So those are the two reference points that I would direct anybody to. But what does it mean for open banking? Is it really, as Summers has as, as eloquently said, it is putting the onus on the product to buy, provider to give that support. So if you take that one step further, that will by default drive innovation because you've got people that are looking um, and, and controlling the product, speaking with the clients and hearing what they need. Therefore, you will get more innovation. Um, open banking in particular, is generally run by the banks or by entrepreneurs if you were to sort of p- pie slice the market very crudely. But what you will get and why, I'm um, going back to why is open banking here, is to open up the market to drive forward innovation. Consumer duty, truly will do that because the product owners by default have to listen to what their clients are telling them and how cool an idea is that almost revolutionary hey
2: yeah and i think um helen just on that the big the big thing for open banking which you know it's the use cases which are of the value and i think what we what we underestimate from open banking is the the richness of the data that is actually accessible to all of those regulated product providers. So no longer just a bank can have access to that type of you know, granular, fine grain, real time, across the board data, but it's also accessible to any company. So that means you know, that insurer that's selling you a life insurance policy equally has no ability to hide behind anything anymore to say, oh, but I can't possibly know my customer. And it's like the FCA is saying, you can know your customer now. We've given you the tools, the legislation, you know, over here on the left and on the right, we're saying now now honour the consumer. And if you put them together, that's when you make actually what I call an effortless way of servicing us as consumers and making sure you comply with a law that
1: actually we should have had probably 500 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. So I will just go, go and see the clip. The horse Yeah, because I'll like, tag it because yeah. it
0: really, really, I mentioned this before the podcast, but reading through a lot of these consumer duty, a lot of things have come out because obviously it's kind of a newer, something that's new and Sam puts it perfectly. Uh, there's a lot of things to read and it's very, very long, but just be able to kind of understand that very clearly about as a consumer, like what does it mean now? Like what do we get uh, through this new consumer duty law? It's pretty incredible. So, and you get to see a really cute horse while you're at it too. So. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of move into now, you guys are people who are at the forefront of open banking. You're reading, you're talking, and it'd be really interesting to kind of hear about what are kind of the biggest trends coming up with businesses and open banking. There's been a lot of trends with, you know, speeding up onboarding experiences and aggregating data, but what are you guys thinking of the next, like kind of the biggest change over the next two years within the industry uh, as a consumer or an investor or even a person wanting to get into the industry?
1: Wow. Okay. If um, I think it's all about the use case, and we've been saying that for for years. It's the and if you look at the best use case in uh, the UK, and because of the UK is at the uh, the vanguard of open banking by default, the best use case in the world, and that's HMRC. Uh, if anybody uh, listening or watching has paid their taxes in the UK online, they will have paid them via open banking, um, effortlessly and seamlessly. And there's now been seven billion to the B of taxes collected by the government uh, through Open Banking. What does that really mean? What, what does that mean? It gives you the perfect reconciliation because none of those um, uh, uh, payments have gone into a suspense account. Yeah. So it has been effortless. It has been um, secure and it has been a good customer journey and it has been efficient. Yeah. And, and that use case will, that with an MVP, that use case will will only grow and grow. Now, if you transfer that use case, okay, the perfect reconciliation and zero um, uh, disputes or, or into the dispense, suspense account, okay, what, where else can you use that? You could use that, for example, in wealth and asset management. So when you go to top up your ISA um, at the end of, you know, uh, the financial year you um, use your debit card or um, exactly as you would do for paying your taxes, exactly the same user journey um, applied to a different market. So uh, you will get the perfect reconciliation, no need uh, for a suspense account, therefore cutting out uh, acres and acres of admin and overhead. So it's all about the use case. So in the UK, we've had uh, 6 million um, users that could easily be 60 million, and that is an over-ambitious. We are on a very, very uh, fast growth curve. So it is about those inspired use cases in open banking, and we are still waiting for the regulators to tell us what is happening in open finance, but everybody is getting their ducks in a row um, to look, as I was saying before, about what more we can do with the data. So for me, it would be about the use cases um, that that drive uh, forward uh, that market, and to get better lending, uh, to be- get a better e-commerce. And wherever we can as a community, we will support an adoption of Open Banking Open Finance to drive forward uh, financial inclusion as well. So that, that's, you know, that's what I think, Sam.
2: Well, I think in the, I think you're right. In the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of what I call some of the more traditional modes of operation disrupted, especially in the payment space, because I think I was surprised uh, I thought the attractiveness for the payment which is called payment initiation in the UK so it's a, again under the PSP 2 legislation but what it means is anyone can initiate a payment with a authorized third party such as MoneyHub or a number of the other you know other um, players you can initiate a payment and what what that means is that you can do a bank-to-bank transfer but you don't you, you can initiate that on behalf of the consumer that with their thumbprint or their face ID or what they're used to actually doing when they make a bank transfer, can be initiated from any company as part of any digital service. So I think we're gonna see a lot more of that. And the reason for that is because I thought it was because of the, the, I thought people would find it attractive because of how cost effective it is. But actually I was really also surprised uh, to find out that the attractiveness is equally because the money goes direct from your account from us, our account, into the business's account or whatever it is we're, we're buying or or, or or investing in or paying for uh, in under 2.4 seconds. So wow. what happens, and it doesn't stop at Friday at 3 o'clock like you know, the, the kind of rail card system does and start again at Monday at 9. That money keeps flowing after 3 o'clock, every 2.5 seconds. And, of course, if you think about all the money that is spent in the world, between three o'clock on a Friday, and nine o'clock on a Monday morning, it's a lot. And actually, I had underestimated the attractiveness of having that money straight into their account. The cash flow, right? Cash is king. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be one of the bigger use cases, along with the ability to use the data more efficiently. So you know, the, the fact that we we in the UK no longer need to like upload our mortgage our bank statements to get mortgages. You can actually just use an open banking link, and the statements go straight through. So there's a lot of that but if i could just look a little bit beyond two years because i think the biggest thing that's coming in terms of open finance and open data is it's not far away i can almost feel it where you know my google maps data you know along with my linkedin data along with my open banking data is all going to be able to be you know used to good effect to get me where i want to get to as as do you said Lindsay like effortless. Like, you know, I suspect I'm not going to have to think about what car I might need to buy. I'm going to get told. I'm going to get told, well, here's the mile you do. Here's how fast you drive. Here's what you do. The, these are the top 10 cars for you, right? I mean, as in, you know, and, and I have to say I, I love that because, you know, who wants to get bogged down in some of that work? I mean, we have to at the moment. But mani- imagine when all of that effort is taken out for us, because actually the granularity of the data enables product and service providers to services in a way that has not been possible before. And all that data has just been on, like, I call it on the scrappy. It's all just been sitting on a big scrappy because, you know, bless the banks, they've just, just not used to it. Mm-hmm. They've been worried about using it. I, I don't know what it is, but they haven't used it. To, and the power that's sitting there, whoa, it's massive.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it all really just I feel like everything you just mentioned all really comes down to time like we as humans are want to be extremely time efficient because life is short you just don't have a lot of time in your hand and so we can use these tools to minimize the amount of time you're you're waiting on trying to find a car or or you're sending payments or you're getting connected to anything and I think it's interesting the whole like automatic payments like 24 7 is is reminds me of the whole why people are starting to use crypto and things like that and just being able to send it automatically from wallet to wallet and I think this is kind of how the normal fiat, fiat money is trying to do the same thing is being able to send it instantly 24 7 which is super super interesting but I think before I we run out of time I would love to kind of hear just being like Extremely innovative woman powerhouses in the fintech spaces. What are kind of pieces of advice that you'd give to either young professionals or people wanting to kind of get into the industry and excel? Like you two will help. Hello, oh,
1: um, what advice would I give? Um, well, I have a. a, a I'm very values driven, so that would be be my advice. And I um one of the the podcasts I listen to is called High Performance. And they always talk, that's where they um, they interview um, entrepreneurs and sportsmen and politicians to find out what makes people um, deliver to, to a high standard. And they always ask what their non-negotiables are. And I think one of my non-negotiables is, is having a team around me that is, that is value-driven and, and very resilient. So I think that anybody that wants to get into open banking, they need to be resilient, okay? Um, it, we... We work in a very agile environment that is fast moving, it is fun, um, but it is it is um it, it, it is long hours, okay? There is no everybody works incredibly hard in open banking because everybody's very, very driven for good. Yeah, people want to make a huge difference. So um, but but going back to the values-driven piece, my advice would be stick to your core values. And one of mine is always passing the mic. To a woman whenever i can so with that lovely segue so <laughs> uh, yeah so I, I my my advice is
2: probably to um to to kind of jump jump to opportunities that present themselves because i think if i look back through my career there's no way when i was uh you know left uni you could have predicted this journey that i have been on it's it's not possible and i think that's the thing that i would probably say is that um if something feels like you you know you you know it sounds interesting or you'd like to do it then then jump at both both feet to do that and I think it doesn't matter if it's with a big corporate or a fintech or something you're doing on your own I don't think any of that matters because it genuinely is a journey and when you get a bit fed up or a bit um you know you think oh this isn't going so well that I always think that's a journey you know you feel like you've it's led to a dead end you know I, I kind of you know you, I I think that's because that dead end will lead to the next road that you're going to go on so you had to go to that dead end to get to the next road and you can't see it always at the time but when you look back you think so I, I think to myself well I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for all the dead ends and the weird journey that I've been on it it, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. so I just would say to people just embrace it. But when you get to a dead end, you know, just be aware that that will be, that will be because you've got to go somewhere else and do something else. And and I think that's, just and be brave, you know, when those those dead ends will happen or when you get to a point when you think, well, I don't know what to do, just be alive or alert to what else you could do. And I often say to people in the big corporates, because they get a bit frustrated because they're, they're like, oh, I want to go and work for a startup. And I'm like, well, you know, genuinely in a big corporate, you can also move around the corporate so, so kind of don't squander those lovely opportunities that you've got working for a big corporate where sometimes you can kind of jump around to different divisions. You know, don't think that, that you, you know, what you're doing, you know, you could be in, I'm going to make it up, but you could be in recruitment for a big corporate and you think, oh, I can't go and work for the finance department. I can't go and work for the open banking team in this business. And it's like, well, why can't you actually? I'm sure there's something. You could do. so, so don't put those barriers up you, of your own, you know, kind of maybe keep them down if you can. And and I think you'd be surprised at where 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 your journey will take you.
1: Mm-hmm. You've got to have a lot of passion, haven't you? To passion drive, do you not think?
2: Oh, I don't know, because you know what, when I started, I, I I've got to be honest with you. I, I I got a job because I needed money. I mean, I'm telling you, I mean I, you know, I graduated and I've worked at Telstra doing I was a programmer at Telstra. I'm not
1: hundred percent sure I was that passionate about it. I've always been whatever I do, I'm I um, I mean, I've wholeheartedly. i always loved
2: life, but, you know, I—I is about, you know, you I, I have to get a job and you have to get, you know, I totally going to be able to stay at home and not own the key or anything. So mm. that's why I'm not just saying sometimes it might take a little bit of time to find where you're
1: passionate.
2: And I just don't beat yourself up if on day one you're like, well, because I can still remember, you know, thinking to myself when I was, you know, coding in COBOL and doing some really, what I call, really dull stuff you know but you know I quite enjoyed it and do you know what the people around me were great but the actual job I was doing was you know it's fairly tedious actually if I'm honest with you mm-hmm. Um, and they've actually got more fun as I went on so I just think sometimes you've got to be a little bit patient but I do believe like Henry said one thing I have never searched I think you've got to go all in and when you do stuff just just get the job done do a good job even if it is a bit dull because just never quite just not sure where that's going
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, I think it's just a passion for life, passion to do more, passion to, to do better. And if that's like you mentioned, if it's not something you love. I think it's if you do it really, really well, you'll kind of find your journey, even if it's, at a, if it's at an end. So, yeah, well, this has been absolutely lovely. Thank you guys so much for coming on, speaking a little about new things happening in the industry and then just kind of what you guys do in general. So thank you so much, Helen. Thank you so much, Samantha. Have a great well, rest of your day. You.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Lindsay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.